Is Dumbledore truly operating on behalf of the greater good? Hey, brother! Okay, everyone, buckle up, because today we are entering the forbidden waters of moral philosophy. If you ever chat with me for very long at all, you will quickly discover that this is a topic that I am personally endlessly fascinated with, and I believe that the wizarding world is just ripe with opportunities for discussion. Not the least of which is the realization by one Severus Snape that what Dumbledore has essentially been doing for all of Harry's life is preparing him for death. And even Snape, who has seemingly despised Harry for his whole life so far, takes this bit of information pretty hard. You've kept him alive so that he can die at the proper moment. You've been raising him like a pig for slaughter. So the function of today's discussion is to try to figure out the unique set of circumstances that Dumbledore is dealing with here. It's questions of power, ethics, prophecies, and above all else, blood magic. I feel like I went really heavy on blood. And how all of these things though seem to fall under the in-universe nefarious banner of for the greater good. Is Dumbledore friend or foe? And let me assure you, it's not always as straightforward as you may hope. Let's discuss. Okay, so the greater good is a truly tricky and potentially dangerous phrase because anything is justifiable as long as you're operating on behalf of the greater good, right? The ends always justify the means as long as the means are ultimately the betterment of everyone, which sounds good unless the thing that you believe is good for everyone is, you know, snapping away half of all existence. Yeah, but maybe we try some other things first, right there, Thanos? Is that okay? Can we all agree that like, we went a little drastic a little quickly. Also, when I say do other things first, I also mean we're never doing your thing, okay? Okay. But on the other hand, you know, the one that's not wearing an infinity gauntlet, the greater good is only really as dangerous as the thing you are attempting to justify with it. Because really aren't most people just simply operating on behalf of the greater good all the time? Anyway, someone is about to leave a comment being like, that's optimistic, Ben. No, but the major difference here is that you don't typically need to justify things as the greater good unless the thing that you happen to be doing is otherwise regarded as bad. And don't worry, we'll get more into the complexities of this particular mantra as we move forward. But now let's set the scene a little bit. When we are first introduced to Dumbledore, he is presented to us as an old, wise, and very talented individual. A man who has committed his life to the instruction of children and the overall betterment of the wizarding world. He is both whimsical and commanding at the same time, and even seems to have a little bit of a soft spot for some light rule bending and or breaking. You may not like him, Minister, but you can't deny Dumbledore's got style. Which I have always personally felt like fits in with my own ideals. Like a little bit of lighthearted chaos is sort of part of the underlying human experience. But above all else, Dumbledore seems to come across as righteous and fair. And this is pretty much true throughout the whole saga all the way up until book seven and the release of The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore written by the infamous Rita Skeeter. And this is the first time we ever get a glimpse at the overall bigger picture. Like what was Dumbledore's life like before Harry was ever alive? And what we find is a version of Dumbledore, maybe before he truly became 
who he is. Or again, at least the version of him that we, the reader, had always known. This younger version of Dumbledore isn't any less talented, although maybe a tick less humble, and his overall aspirations seem to involve a lot more glory and a little less selflessness. And overall, to be fair here, a lot of the people that we look up to out in the real world have achieved some measure of glory, so to aspire to that isn't necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. However, in his youth, we learned that Dumbledore had a much narrower view of the world, and with that came much more nefarious goals. Goals that involved a revolution over the non-magical population, a repositioning of the pecking order, and where wizards fell inside of it. Where in this new world, they would at least idealistically hold a gracious power over muggles. And this mission would deeply root itself inside of that mantra for the greater good. It's best outlined in a letter from Dumbledore himself to Gellert Grindelwald, whose interpretation of Dumbledore's words are misguided at best and dangerous at worst. Your point about wizard dominance being for the muggles own good. This I think is the crucial point. Yes, we have been given power and yes, that power gives us the right to rule, but it also gives us responsibilities over the ruled. We must stress this point. It will be the foundation stone upon which we build. Where we are opposed as we surely will be, this must be the basis for all all of our counter arguments. We seize control for the greater good. Now, the important thing to remember here, even though Dumbledore wrote these words, he never actually follows through with this particular mission, and if anything, he will eventually stand in opposition to it. And we learned during Dumbledore's conversation with Harry inside of King's Cross Station that this was a moment in his life that he ultimately learned drastically from. And afterwards, he committed his life to helping others and vowed to never accept significant power. I meanwhile was offered the post of Minister of Magic, not once, but several times. Naturally, I refused. I had learned that I was not to be trusted with power. But you'd have been better, much better than Fudge or Scrimjower burst out Harry. Would I? asked Dumbledore heavily. I am not so sure. I had proven as a very young man that power was my weakness and my temptation. It is a curious thing, Harry, but perhaps those who are best suited to power are those who have never sought it. Now, I specifically have taken the time to outline this portion of Dumbledore's life because I think it also demonstrates the significant growth that he underwent throughout his life. But despite all of this learning and to bring the conversation back to Harry in particular, I definitely think that there is an argument to be made over the fact that everything that Dumbledore does in regards to Harry, in regards to preparing him for what he must do in his fight against Voldemort, also potentially falls under the banner of for the greater good. So again, as Snape of all people points out, You've kept him alive so that he can die at the proper moment. What this is suggesting is that the eventual and inevitable loss of Harry Potter's life is for the overall betterment of all wizard kind. In simplest terms, this idea can be compared to the very famous trolley problem. It's a thought experiment that poses the following question. There is a runaway trolley on a set of tracks. You look ahead and realize that five people are somehow stuck and if the train continues forward, it will hit all five of them. You, however, have the ability to divert the train down a different set of tracks, but also notice that one person is stuck on the tracks in that direction. An incredibly simple interpretation of the greater good with this example is that it is always worth saving five people versus saving one. But then the experiment can have a myriad of different emotional layers added to it as well. Say, for example, you maybe know the person who is on the diverted set of tracks. Or maybe the five people straight ahead are convicted felons. Or maybe you're the person on the diverted set of tracks. It doesn't really matter what the modifications are. It's just a question as to whether or not once your emotions are brought into the equation, does it change the way in which you interpret the thought experiment? Because honestly, on some level, 
any hero versus villain story that you've ever watched or heard or read is basically a very obvious version of the trolley problem. You, the hero, can do nothing, and this one person will hurt lots of people. Or, you, the one person, or the hero, can do something and save lots of people. If you'd like an example of what I'm trying to say here, you can just watch any Marvel movie. All of them work. In general, we probably don't spend very much time at all debating the ethics of whether or not our hero should in fact defeat the villain. But that's where the Harry Potter saga makes things a bit more confusing, because we know from the very beginning, Dumbledore had a piece of information that nobody else had. The prophecy. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches. It goes on, but to read it all will kill my voice. But what it means is that the Chosen One is on their way as we speak, and it can only be one of two people, Harry Potter or Neville Longbottom. Realistically, it probably should have been Neville, but Voldemort is a hypocrite and marks Harry as his equal, so boom, we've got ourselves a Chosen One. And the Chosen One. Exactly, Harry. Exactly. But Dumbledore alone knows all of the information of the prophecy and basically immediately goes to work in raising Harry with one goal in mind, to eventually defeat Voldemort. But after Dumbledore learns that Harry himself is a Horcrux and in order for Voldemort to be defeated, Harry himself will also have to die, Dumbledore is given a bit of a unique version of the trolley problem. He has to choose whether or not to direct the train, in this case, the Voldemort, at Harry or the population of everyone, everywhere. Shoot dang friends, we'll pause right there to give a huge thank you to today's sponsor, Me Undies. Talk about the greater good, wearing more comfortable underwear literally makes your life better. But the good news is guys that you can cozy up in maximum comfort this fall season thanks to Me Undies. Y'all, I have personally been a longtime subscriber myself, and I have to tell you that within the wide, wide world of underbritches, this is just simply the way to go. Whether you're on the grind during the work week or posted up on the couch watching through that televised Harry Potter movie marathon for like the 37th time, you know you've been there. MeUndies is here to keep you comfy. MeUndies has been able to achieve new levels of comfort thanks to using the softest and most breathable fabric. For me personally, for years and years, I had been a boxer shorts kind of lad. It's just something that had been kind of like ingrained into me ever since I was like changing for gym class in sixth grade. But upon receiving my first ever pair of MeUndies as a proper adult, I had a massive revelation. Sixth graders don't always know what they're talking about. In fact, probably most of the time they don't. If you haven't already tried them, then I can't recommend them enough. And if you have, then you can continue to take solace in the fact that MeUndies always uses responsibly sourced materials. And do something that we here at Super Carlin Brothers also pride ourselves on doing, which is working with partners that care for their workers. Plus, you can get 20% off your first order when you head on over to MeUndies.com super. Again, that's gonna be MeUndies.com slash super for 25% off and free shipping. One last time, meundies.com slash super. Link is in the description down below. Honestly, because Voldemort like, you know, fails to take over a high school, I don't always feel like he necessarily gets enough credit for just how bad of a dude he really is. <laughs> But what this forces in Dumbledore is go back and revisit the question that he spent most of his life attempting to repair. Do I operate on behalf of the greater good? And spoilers, the answer to that question is that yes, he will and does. We've actually spent a huge amount of time going through and figuring out all of the various ways in which Dumbledore was like effectively training Harry for this very moment. For example, have you ever found it kind of strange that there are like 
obstacles guarding the Philosopher's Stone, and each of those obstacles are uniquely capable of being solved by each of Harry's friends. None of which even matters, because the mirror in the final room itself is virtually unbeatable. Except, of course, unless you are Harry, who was able to find the Mirror of Erised, which happened to be on display in an empty classroom on the same week that Dumbledore himself gifted Harry an invisibility cloak. I'm invisible? Or then there's the fact that Dumbledore quite literally hires a moron, I mean, Gildory Lockhart, to teach his entire school defense against the dark arts for a year, basically just to teach Harry the dangers of vanity and fame. But I don't talk about that. From the moment that Harry enters the castle, Dumbledore is very carefully guiding him through all of the necessary steps required so that he can eventually defeat Voldemort. Or as Snape says it, You've been raising him like a pig for slaughter. Well, it sure sounds bad when you describe it like that, Snape. Jeez. Read the room, man. Actually, sometimes it very much does sound bad, which is the very reason why we're making this video. But the sentiment that Harry is being raised like a pig for slaughter is essentially true for more than half of the entire series. This is all the way up until Voldemort's ultimate resurrection at the end of Goblet of Fire in the graveyard of Little Hangleton. Harry's explaining to Dumbledore everything that happened and gets to the part where he specifically used Harry's blood instead of anybody else's to return. He said my blood would make him stronger than if he used someone else's, Harry told Dumbledore and for a fleeting instant, Harry thought he saw a gleam of something like triumph in Dumbledore's eyes. And the real props go to Dumbledore inside of this moment for not like jumping out of his chair in just absolute glee. Because that gleam of triumph that Harry just witnessed was Dumbledore realizing that Voldemort had inadvertently given Harry a way to survive his ultimate necessary demise. We here at Super Carlin Brothers have always very affectionately referred to this particular circumstance as a love crux because Harry's own blood residing inside of Voldemort's veins, in addition to Lily's sacrificial protection, literally anchors Harry to life. However, the fact that Dumbledore doesn't jump for glee inside of this moment is absolutely essential because one of the key details necessary for the whole plan to work is that eventually Harry is going to need to believe that he is truly sacrificing himself. But I should have died. I didn't defend myself. I meant to let him kill me. And that, said Dumbledore, will I think have made all the difference. And so it does. Harry is able to come back to life and Dumbledore's mission is complete. The greater good has been served. Or was it? I mean, yes, Voldemort does die and Harry does survive. Like, that's the greatest good. But the bigger question is, was that how Dumbledore was operating the entire time? Would he sacrifice anything to defeat Voldemort? The answer is no. The loophole is the prophecy. Dumbledore knows that Harry has the power to defeat Voldemort and believes that to be true. And as a result, for Harry's first 12 years of life, there's really no issues at all. Raise Harry to defeat Voldemort. Easy. That gets us through the end of Harry's first year at school. But then in Harry's second year, a new piece of information arises, specifically the diary, which Dumbledore is able to recognize as a horcrux. The problem with this discovery is that it also comes with the realization that Harry himself is also a horcrux. This is the moment when Dumbledore learns that what will be essential to defeat Voldemort is also the loss of Harry's own life. Because that's the only way for the horcrux living inside of Harry to be destroyed. At this point, Dumbledore is quite literally caught in the crosshairs of a paradox. 
Harry is the only one who can defeat Voldemort. But if Harry is also a Horcrux, then he himself can't survive because otherwise the Horcrux living inside of him will continue to anchor Voldemort to life. But then also, if the prophecy says he can, then there must be a way for this to work, right? It looks like he's going to have to resort back to this idea of the greater good philosophy, that in order for Voldemort to be destroyed, Harry will also have to die. And yet, he doesn't have to resort back to that philosophy because he believes in the prophecy. It's a prophecy philosophy, a prophylophacy. Real highbrow entertainment happening over here, right? <laughs> What this means for Dumbledore at this point in time though, is that he is going to have to fumble around in a kind of fog for some period of time and wait for a potential solution to present itself and just have faith that it eventually will. And in the meantime, he will continue to prepare Harry in what he believes is simply the best way. And we see this in his third and fourth years. Up until this point, Harry's education in the realm of defense against the dark arts has largely been a joke. Hardly any of you remember that my favorite color is lilac. After Quirrell and Lockhart though, we get Lupin and Moody. And in the world of Defense Against the Dark Arts, these guys are heavy hitters. Well, to be fair, one of them ends up being a total fraud and actually an enemy in disguise. But otherwise, Dumbledore's intention was to give him the proper education, which somehow he also does still seem to get. But then at the end of Goblet of Fire, Dumbledore's patience pays off when he learns that Voldemort has taken Harry's blood into himself. This is the way for Harry to truly defeat Voldemort, a way to destroy the Horcrux inside with Harry himself not dying. But again, Harry can't know that he has the ability to come back. He must want to die. So from this point forward, what Dumbledore needs to do is create someone who is willing to accept that fate, which again, he does do. So while at times it may have come across like Dumbledore was simply raising Harry like a pig for slaughter, he maintains faith in the prophecy and Harry throughout the whole process. Even when he can't see the finish line, the only greater good that Dumbledore is still serving is his faith in the greatest good, love. What Big deal. Ironically, it was also love as a teenager that was misguiding Dumbledore into the wrong interpretation of this same exact concept. But with age, experience, and a prophecy, Dumbledore gets there in the end. Harry's own relationship with the greater good and love itself is summed up rather beautifully in one of his final conversations just hours before his intended demise with Aberforth. You know, the one who was most negatively impacted by Dumbledore's prior relationship with the concept of the greater good. I don't believe it. Dumbledore loved Harry, said Hermione. Why didn't he tell him to hide then, shot back Aberforth? Why didn't he say to him, take care of yourself, here's how to survive? Because, said Harry before Hermione could answer, sometimes you've got to think about more than your own safety. Sometimes you've got to think about the greater good. Boom. In the wrong hands, it of course can be incredibly dangerous, but is the greater good inherently a bad thing? Of course not. And I think both Harry and Dumbledore got there in the end. <laughs> Guys, as always, thank you so much for watching today's video. Be sure to like this video if you haven't already and subscribe so you don't miss any future Harry Potter action from us. If you'd like to see our entire book by book breakdown of Dumbledore's big plan, how he was coaching Harry every single step of the way, you can check out this video right over here. But otherwise, until next time, bye.